This week on A Lively Experiment, how you vote this fall is going to look a lot different. But it's not exactly what the Secretary of State was hoping for. And local colleges and universities are figuring out how to get their students back on campus. We sit down with one president to hear about her institution's plans. A Lively Experiment is generously underwritten by... For more than 30 years, A Lively Experiment has provided insight and analysis of important political issues that face Rhode Islanders. I'm John Hazenwhite, Jr., and I'm proud to support this great program in Rhode Island PBS. Joining us with their insights, Sue Sienke, chair of the Rhode Island Republican Party, political and educational contributor Sean Holly, and former U.S. Congressman Bob Wagan. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Lively. I'm Jim Hummel. With the primary election in September a little over six weeks away, election officials are scrambling to make sure they can get voters to vote easily during this pandemic, looking at a mix of voting. Secretary of State Nellie Gorbea got half a loaf at the General Assembly last week, getting the nod for early voting, but not to be able to send out mail ballot applications to everyone. Bob, let me start with you. You've run a lot of elections. You've watched a lot of elections. The challenge always is making sure you uh, maintain the integrity of the election, but also make sure that people are not disenfranchised. And that's a real tough balance now during this pandemic. It's really difficult. And uh, as Nellie said, one of the critical points for her is that um, the signature of the person who's applying for or is voting is a critical uh, piece of that information. Uh, Of course, we always have the uh, uh, people have to notarize it or to witness it. Um, I think that it's a good thing uh, that we have a mail ballot. uh, And I'm disappointed the Senate did not approve that for Nellie Gobea. I think you're going to see the the governor uh, step into this. But if she does, she's stepping into, I think, some very shaky constitutional grounds. Uh, I I don't think an executive order should supersede the inaction of the um, General Assembly. Uh, They they should have approved it, they didn't. And so I think we're gonna have to live with the the result that is that you can ask for a mail ballot, but you're not gonna be able to have all uh, mail ballot voting. At the same time, Sue, and I know you're looking at this because you got a lot of local candidates to, to, to keep track of, they uh, the June primary, a lot of these things went out. They didn't come back. There were, you know, dead voters getting whatever. So there is the concern about the integrity of the election. Sure. I think the first thing that we have to look at is step one. You need to clean up the voter rolls. Nellie has been the secretary of state for five years and it never seemed to be an issue before. So the presidential preference primary, she sent out mail ballot applications to over 700,000 registered voters. Over 100,000 of those came back as undeliverable. 150,000 people asked for mail ballot applications. They sent the applications in, they asked for the ballots. Only 100,000 of those came back. So where did the other 50,000 go? We know that 1,600 of those mail ballots came in after the election and were not counted. So those votes were not counted. We also have people that asked for applications and never received them. you know, you have to clean up the voter rolls first. Our system that we currently have in place is not able to handle this. Our local board of canvassers were overwhelmed. So if you want to change the system, I'm all for that. Of course, we're all for mail ballots. The Rhode Island Republicans, you know, we do have an older population that utilizes mail ballots. We want them to be able to utilize them. 
but we just don't have the system in place to handle all of this currently. Sean? Well, I, uh, we have to make sure that there's options out there, and I fully support uh, folks like Jim Vincent of the NAACP Providence branch and his position that voting is the cornerstone, cornerstone of democracy. Uh, to support that democracy during a pandemic, the branch uh, strongly supports the, the safe and healthy voting. Um, there needs to be options, but there, there, we also need to preserve the uh, in-person voting too as well in order for the voters to not to feel uh, to be disenfranchised. I also wonder, Bob, we've talked about early voting and to either one, uh, this is done in a lot of other states. I know North Carolina's had it. They're talking about 20 days early voting. The concept of early voting, what do you guys think about that? So we don't have an objection as Republicans. We don't have an objection to early voting because, again, you go into your local board of canvassers, you produce your ID. It gives people the option that may want to rely on mail ballots, but worry about whether or not their ballot made it to be counted on time. You don't want to disenfranchise people. So we don't have an objection to that. Um, again, you have to make sure that you have the personnel at the local board of canvassers that are able to handle the influx of people coming in 20 days early. But we don't have an objection to that. I, I think the 20 days early is something that uh, is concerning because some things can happen, quite frankly, just before the election. Having a early voting of maybe seven to 10 days seems more reasonable. But 20 to 30 days out, like the state of Oregon and Washington have very, very early voting, I think up to 30 days before the election. That seems to be a little bit uh, extreme to me. I think for most candidates, they want to be able to make uh, their case to the voters uh, and they want as much time as possible. If you vote 20 days out, you may, uh, there may be issues that arise in the last 20 days that you may not be able to consider in your voting. And so therefore, uh, having early voting is good, um, but I do, uh, prefer it to be more in the neighborhood of 10 days versus 20 days out. That seems picky, Ewan, but I think it's important. But isn't that also, go ahead, Sean. I agree with uh, Bob's uh, concerns there, but I just think given the state of the world today, I think as many options as possible have to be available. And isn't it also, Sean and Bob, buyer beware? I mean, if you understand, I think a lot of people, look, 20 days out, things can happen, but as opposed to being able to cast your vote and not, I would err on the side of, you know, you don't understand things are going to happen, but I think most people have made up their minds, at least now on some of the national races. I I think that many of the people who vote very early, particularly in those uh, Western states where they have the 20 to 30 day early voter um, eligibility, I think they've already made up their mind. You were right, Jim, in that uh, they know who they're voting for. Nothing's going to change their mind. They're going to do that. Um, I just get concerned that a candidate can come on in the last um, 20 days with some very important issues for the voters to consider. And therefore, uh, they should do that. Uh, up until the just prior, a week prior to the election. The one last thing, Sue, I found it uh, a little amusing. The Senate leadership got in the way of the whole sending the mail ballot applications out. And wow, it's amazing that the Senate president and the leadership are involved in primary races. What a shock that they would want to get in the way, right? Absolutely. You know, when you have a primary opponent and you're worried about that, maybe your thinking changes a little bit. Um, and I say to Bob about the early voting, 
it won't be October surprises anymore. You have to shift your thinking to September surprises. If you have information about your opponent, you have to get it out a little bit earlier. Uh, I would also say that social media changes all that altogether. Social okay. media has made it instantaneous information, and you could get that eight days out, nine days out, ten days out. That would change your opinion. So I, I would say the old days of um, uh, traditional television advertising and those uh, types of things we used to do 25, 30 years ago, they don't pertain anymore because social media changes things on an instant. Okay. Also, there's a problem with social media with what you see on social media not being true. So that's correct. That's correct. Instant may not be that good. But you also, you know, political ads, one thing I learned a long time ago, political ads, there's one basic thing in premise political ads. They don't have to be true. <laughs> I don't, that's true. Because, yeah, right. Free speech, right? <laughs> they don't have to be true. All right. To be continued, uh, we talked a lot last week about K through 12 going back to school. This week, we wanted to poll some of the local colleges and universities. We have a lot of them here in Rhode Island about what they're going to be doing, some of the hybrid plans. I had a chance to sit down with Johnson and Whale University president. Uh, Marie uh, Bernardo Souza to get her feel for what's going. They've come up with a very interesting plan. And I talked to her. The first question I asked her was what the planning was going into this fall. Here's a little bit of my interview with her. We started our planning the moment, you know, we made the decision to move to a remote learning environment and our students had to leave campus. And just that process entirely was so dramatic. We had um, over 5,000 students that relocated and started to learn remotely. On July 6th, we had 540 students join us here at the Providence campus. They are completely in their uniforms, wearing their face mask, and doing really, really well. We've told all of our students, you know, to expect the unexpected. Um, every day we're receiving new information and one concern is the fact that so many students in that age group of 18 to 25 are now, that's the, the group that's on the rise as it relates to COVID cases. We're going to try to do small pods when they arrive on campus. Um, we, we try to get students to think about, you're like this little family unit. If you live together, you should go to dinner together, you should hang out together, and do the same thing with study groups, that you kind of stay with your pod. And we also know who our students are. We surveyed our students. They want to be back on campus. So that was their big request. It doesn't matter. We'll wear our masks, we'll wash our hands, we'll sanitize, we'll do all the right things, but just let us come back to campus. You know, I wish I had a crystal ball. I think that's the big challenge, wanting to know what's coming down the pike. So every time we think we have this situation under control, something new is presented. You know, the one thing I found interesting, Sean, let me begin with you. You've been in uh, classrooms at both uh, Johnson & Wales and PC. I asked her about the faculty members, because that's been a big issue. You have some older faculty members. The kids want to get back on campus. She said they've been working with the faculty. Obviously, there are some concerns, but I wonder your thoughts going back into the classroom and, and how that's going to work out. First of all, I certainly think the world of, uh, of Marie, and she's very um, sharp and she uh, would do well for Johnson & Wells, she really keeps uh, an eye on, on the students. She really cares about them, but she also has a strong relationship with the professors on campus at, at JWU. Um, there is definitely, uh, a, you know, everybody's, there's a lot of uncertainty still, 
as to what it, the exact plan is going to be once school reopens at PC. Uh, the, uh, the board, the, uh, the PC's con continuity uh, tax force met and uh, decided on August 31st being the opening for, for PC. There'll be various options allowed for the professors to best get across their message to the students. Um, let's face it, we all want to be in person. I mean, in order to give uh, high quality education to a student, there's nothing that's going to replace being a person. So, but there are very crafty ways that a professor can utilize in terms of getting the curriculum across to the students through online and other methods. Bob? I, I think that you, first of all, the interview was great. I thought she uh, she's very engaging. She's very caring, I can tell. Uh, so I, I think she's got her handle uh, she got a handle on what needs to be done at JWU. Um, I think the colleges uh, are going to vary quite a bit. I know some of them are going to go all online, uh, stay remote for the first half of the first semester. I just think you're going to see a, a, a very mixed hybrid of different kinds of options that are available. For the faculty, um, the older faculty, they're going to be somewhat hesitant. Um, but I think it's going to work. I, I think that we're going to ease into it a little bit easier than what most people thought. I think it's not all going to be face-to-face -face all at one time. I think there'll be some uh, mixture of hybrid and as well as face-to-face. -face. I know my two, two of my grandchildren are in college now, and both of them are going back in August. And each one of their institutions have different ways of handling the situation. Uh, some of them are just doing small class sizes. Uh, some are doing... Uh, hybrids, some are doing totally online. So it's going to vary. And I think it's a learning um, experience for all the administrators. Uh, but I think they're going to be fine. Because uh, one thing about colleges, uh, they can pivot a lot faster than elementary and secondary schools can. Uh, and that should be good uh, uh, for them. I, I, I think we the, promise, the real promise of a vaccine is making everybody feel optimistic about where we're going to be in a very short time. Uh, and I'm hoping that comes about quickly. So, All I can say is gap year. The amount of money that you have to pay for a college education these days and to rely on total online learning um, as a parent who has to pay those bills, I would not participate in a totally online uh, environment for my student. I think that Sean is right, that you learn so much with that interaction on a daily basis, the back and forth between a professor and a student. And certain uh, majors are just not conducive to online learning. I mean, we have the University of Phoenix already, so if anybody wants to take <laughs> online, they can go there. Um, I commend the, the leader of JWU. I think she has taken the bull by the horns and did it a great job, but as a parent who has to pay those bills, I would say to my student, wait a while, because you yeah. want that full college experience, um, go work, get some experience, and then go back to college. Right, so their plan is 5,000 people coming back. The graduates program is gonna be all online. They wanna to try to get the undergraduates on. She said 65% of the campus lives on campus. I know, I've heard people do the same thing with the gap years. I think that the real, challenge that a lot of universities are facing. Bob, you've seen this at URI. They're saying the Rhode Island students can't come and live on campus. They're trying to figure that out. What happens when they get four, five, six, seven weeks into the semester and then they have to go online and you've paid that full tuition and you're not looking 
at any reimbursement. That was a tough decision, I'm sure, for URI, because if you live in one socket and you want to live on campus, they're basically telling you, you got to find a place at Bonnet Shores, possibly, or you got to commute from one socket every day. Well, there are many courses already uh, at URI and other colleges and universities uh, that are hybrid. Some of them are fully online, but some of them are hybrid. Um, and their students are uh, adapt very well to them. Um, I think that this semester, the fall semester, is going to be um, a, a, a testing of what we can do and can't do. Uh, I could see very easily that some classes will be uh, half online, half face-to-face. -face. Sue is right in that there are many courses that require face-to-face -face all the time. Pharmacy, nursing, um, uh, pre-veterinary medicine. And none of those courses, you have to be in the, the, uh, uh, the classroom with the uh, faculty and the students. Uh, you just can't do it any other way. Uh, and I think they're going to do that and they will modify things and adjust. The good thing about colleges, uh, as I said earlier, they are very nimble. They can adjust and they can modify the way they do things. And I think they'll be just fine. And Sue, then there is K through 12. And I've been sitting through the governor's briefings and as it should be, it's kind of a moving goalpost because they don't know, but we're six weeks out. And the governor, you know, six weeks ago said, we want everybody back in class. Some of the superintendents are a little leery about that. So I wonder what your thoughts overall, what we need to do between now and August 31st to kind of get there. Well, I think what you have to do is look at what's best for the students in K through 12. And we have the American Pediatrics Association. You have Dr. Scott saying the best thing for these students is to be in the classroom. Um, there are measures that you can take, make sure that you have sanitized and you keep social distancing as much as you can and keep the kids in the pods, but they need to be together. Um, there are too many mental health issues. Teachers need to be able to see students. When you see them in the classroom, you'll be able to tell if that student is having a tough day, what, what their home life is like. For some students, the most safe place for them is to be in the classroom during the day. And we've ripped that away from them. For special ed students, for students that have dyslexia and have trouble learning, that in-class learning um, that was taken away from them the last semester was terrible. But we all know that who controls what is gonna happen in September is the unions. And whatever the unions decide is what's gonna happen. Sean? But Jim, what, one of the things I think we gotta be very careful of it is not letting politics enter in the arena of uh, education, because um, I, I, when I think of education, I think of uh, Nelson Mandela and what he said about in terms of education is the most powerful weapon which can use to, we can use to change the world. Uh, education has to happen. We can't let it not happen. I understand that one may think that you're not getting the same quality education by it being online, but that's up to the professor and the students actually to work together to make sure that that quality education happens. I don't see a way around not having education or not having school happen. Uh, some of the methods that PC has for, for teaching are, are the following, in person, including accommodations for students studying remotely, uh, the high flex, which is, uh, allows some students to be in the classroom while others learn remotely, hybrid, which allows for classes to alternate between meeting online and in person which with accommodations for students studying remotely and then there's two forms of remotely that with would allow a professor to see classes meeting remotely and uh, 
that which would allow students to learn the same material as their classmates, but independent of regularly scheduled class times. I don't disagree with you, Sean. I think that PC has, has done a good job. But when you're talking about K through 12 education, and particularly you're talking about K through six, those students are not really self-motivated um, to the extent that a college student would be, or even someone in junior high and high school. You can present material to those students and let them run with it. They're self-motivated, they will do the work. But what we've seen the last semester is that there were some students that didn't have internet connection in the inner cities, that they had to use, one family had to use their phone to be able to um, have multiple students learning. Um, it just was not the same quality that they're getting. Um, and we saw up in Providence that the uh, John Hopkins report said that eighth grade young gentlemen in eighth grade were not reading at grade level. I mean, we can't allow that to continue because you're right, education is a great equalizer. And I think that not having that in person for those, particularly those vulnerable students that did not have access to the internet, that were not getting the same quality of education. So it's very different K through 12 than it is for college. Kids in college should be invested. They should be online. They should be learning. But when you have a kindergartner that can't read, you need a parent sitting there. You need somebody sitting there helping focus the child, getting them invested in what is going on. In elementary and secondary school systems, it's going to vary depending on the community, whether it be a more urban community versus a urban community and how they handle this situation. I, I do believe that it's come down to this last week. We need to have a decision by the commissioner of education and the governor exactly what's going to happen. Um, for K through five, uh, that's one, they may have a, a strategy for that se segment, that cohort. For middle school, it may be different. For high school, it may be something different. But we need to have that now, not only for the students and the teachers, but also for the parents to know exactly what's going to happen with regard to their children going forward. I applaud the governor and, and the commissioner for what they're doing. They're trying to study and plan as much as possible, but they may need to make a decision in this next week exactly what's going to happen. And I would suggest you that there's three different cohorts uh, in elementary and secondary, and they can each be held accountable in different ways and they can teach in different ways. Um, I think uh, Sue is right in that uh, K through five, uh, you're going to need to have them face-to-face -face in the classroom. But I do know that in high school, some of that can be hybrid. Some of it can be where they come to class for one or two days, and they, or they may come in the morning, and another segment come in the afternoon. There's many ways we can do it, but it's not going to be a simple plan, but they've got to get it done now. People need to know. Parents need to know what's going to happen come August 31st. I agree with you, Bob. You know, I have a, a daughter that teachers down in Maryland, and they already know what they're doing in September. Two weeks notice is really not enough time for parents to plan what they have to do. Um, and you're talking about, again, more than just the education, we feed students breakfast and lunch in school. And they did a pretty good job at trying to pivot and make sure that their students were fed, but really to have them in that building, it would be seamless. Sean, you want the last word on this? Well. I, I agree with both of uh, Bob and, and Sue on their points they're making, and, and definitely at the K-12 uh, level, there's a need to be in person, uh, especially 
in instances where you have some families that don't necessarily have that engagement at home, they're not really getting learning at home as well. So, it, but we got to be concerned that, you know, no education, bad education is, is, is thought of as no education at all. I mean, there's definitely a need to be in person. Um, there's definitely a need to figure out whatever plan we are going to input needs to be done swiftly and, and we should have had it already. But um, even what, even if we do make a plan, it's still going to have to be flexible given the state of the world. Okay, let's go to uh, outrages, and then we may have a few national issues. Sue, let me begin with you. Any outrage or kudo on your plate this week? Sure. I think the outrage uh, and the kudo, I always do both, is the IGT deal that's uh, been presented, the 20-year no-bid contract to IGT. I think that the minority leader, Blake Filippi, is right to question they had an independent consultant that came in that talked about the overpayments, the $660 million in overpayments that the state of Rhode Island, why not bring those consultants in so the legislature could ask the finance committee, the oversight committee can ask those questions. The contract does not expire till 2023. So why not take our time and make sure that we get the deal right? Yeah, isn't that funny? It was last summer we were talking all IGT and the Johns Hopkins report, and that's kind of been off to the side. But I, I think that's something the legislature is really going to have to look at this fall, definitely. Um, yes. Bob, Bob, what do you have? Outrage, kudo, or both? I have both. I have uh, the kudo has to be uh, on the uh, side of the biotech firms, the five firms that have come out and said they may have a vaccine. Uh, the pandemic is the biggest issue uh, that's facing America and the, the world. And being able to have such rapid response as they have had uh, that we may have by October, um, at the latest, by January, uh, a vaccine uh, for this uh, COVID-19. It's just a phenomenal thing. And kudos to all of them who have accelerated the program, who've worked really hard on this, and all the people that are involved in it. Um, the uh, outrage is, is the uh, Trump administration and President Trump saying that he may not accept the election results. Um, that That's terrifying to me. Democrat or Republican, that's terrifying to me that someone in that position would say that they're going to consider not accepting the results of the election by the people of the United States, unless it's uh, something that they particularly like. Outrageous. All right. Sean, what do you have this week? I'm going to stick uh, just with a kudo, uh, and that involves uh, John Lewis, C.T. Vivian, and Leon Holly. Uh, John Lewis is the son of sharecroppers who survived the brutal beating uh, by police during a landmark 1965 march in, in Selma, Alabama, to become a towering figure of the civil rights movement and a longtime U.S. congressman. He uh, passed away, uh, unfortunately, with, um, with cancer uh, at the age of 80 recently. Uh, Lewis also died uh, on the same day as civil um, rights leader, C.T. Uh, Vivian, who was 95. The dual deaths of the civil rights icons come as the nation is still grappling with uh, racial upheaval in the wake of the death of George Floyd and others in the subsequent Black Lives Matters protests that have swept the nation. And Leon Hawley hails from Washington, D.C. Uh, he'll turn 94 in December. Uh, he's battling lung cancer and still demanding physical therapy even during this um, what he's going through. But most importantly, he is my dad, and he's a lifelong educator in the D.C. public school system. 
He was not necessarily a civil rights leader, but he certainly has walked amongst them. Um, and most importantly, and most definitely, he is my hero. All right, Sean, thank you for that. That is a great note to end on. Folks, thank you so much for joining us, Bob and Sue and Sean. Welcome, Sean, making his debut to Lively Experiment. We hope to have you back at some point. Welcome, welcome. And folks, if you don't catch us uh, on Friday or Sunday, although we're doing this live uh, virtually, you can check us out always on YouTube. We have podcasts, Twitter, Facebook, all the social media. So join us back here next week. We hope you have a great week, and we'll be back here next week as the Lively Experiment continues. Experiment is generously underwritten by. For more than 30 years, a lively experiment has provided insight and analysis of important political issues that face Rhode Islanders. I'm John Hazen White Jr., and I'm proud to support this great program and Rhode Island PBS.